0: What does a young man who's part of an ancient religious order have to teach us about philosophy, happiness, and the good life? Find out next.
1: Everyone, thanks so very much for joining us on another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We are your co hosts, Sam Guzman and John Heinen. We're excited to be joined here today by a man who needs no introduction for many people, and that's Father Gregory Pine. But before we get to him and our introduction of him, I want to um, thank you and ask you to make sure to like and subscribe if this is your first time listening, second time listening, 50th time listening. We appreciate it and, uh, and that all helps the algorithm, helps reach more men like you. If you are so inclined, we have an awesome store with a bunch of custom Catholic Gentleman goods. We also have a Patreon account, patreon.com slash Catholic Gentleman, which uh, will help support the ministry. All the proceeds go to allow Sam and I to continue doing these things to reach more men and for a lot of future uh, endeavors that we have and uh, in, in mind to work towards. So check those out. And uh, again, thanks so much. Again, today we have Father Gregory Pine. He is a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph. He is presently assigned on a doctoral candidate in dogmatic theology at the University of Freiburg. Freiburg? How do you say that? We say Freiburg. Freiburg. There we go. It's not German. Uh, In Switzerland, he served previously as the assistant director for campus outreach at the Thomistic Institute. He is the co-author of Marian Consecration with Aquinas and Credo, an RCIA program, and the author of a new book, Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly. I'm going to put all that in the show notes. He is also a regular contributor to the podcasts Pints with Aquinas and Godsplaining, both which Sam and I are very familiar with, Sam being on Pints, both of us being on Godsplaining. So Father Gregory Pine, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be. Awesome. So as um, Sam was suggesting there at the beginning, why did you choose to become a Dominican? Of all the orders that are out there, what brought you to the life as a Dominican?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, one that is not immediately apparent or that's not patently obvious, I suppose, because it's a little bit of of a strange choice. Um, You know, growing up, I I didn't have really like any real aspirations to be a priest or to be a religious. Um, I think that whenever I was like captivated by a potential like vocation or profession, I just added it to a list. So I think at one point um, my list did include the priesthood, but it was uh, to be a robot making uh, basketball playing paleontological priest. So it was like more of a, a more of a side hustle. You know, I was, (laughs) I was serious about finding dinosaur bones, but if I could also celebrate the sacraments, you know, kind of here and there, I would have been pleased. Um, But then my um, let's see, in in high school, I I applied and got into Franciscan university of Steubenville and my sisters had gone there before me. And when I went, they were like, for your first year uh, don't date. So that way you you make good friends, make like a, a wide variety of friends rather than spending a lot of your time with just one, you know, presumably wonderful young woman. And I was like, "That seems like good sense. So I didn't. And that year, I also went to a lecture by a professor from St. Louis University named Eleanor Stump. And she lectured on Aquinas on the nature of love. Hmm. Uh, Before then, I had read pious books, I had read like spiritual books, I had read even some philosophical and theological books, not many. um, But I had like vague and eclectic notions about what the church taught. So if you're like, You know, Mm. Greg, give a talk about uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. I could be like, you know, there's this guy named St. Louis de Montfort, and he said this stuff. And also, I read the Gospel of Luke once, and I found this thing over here. And um, I also went to a church once in Lourdes when I was eight, and that was Mm -hmm. cool. You know, so it's kind of like a come at you from all over type place experience. And then the way that she explained St. Thomas on the nature of love, it was synthetic, and it was very clear. That she saw reality through the eyes of St. Thomas, as it were, um, as something whole and then basically as something that you could gain access to and then explain as it was. So it wasn't like she had memorized a bunch of propositions and was rattling them off. It was almost as if she saw reality by, by having studied St. Thomas Aquinas and she had a grammar and like a vocabulary basically for describing it in a way that, that corresponded with my experience of life. So I was like, that's what I've always wanted to say, or that's what I've always wanted to know, but I've never been able to. And uh, I feel like this is an invitation. And so I picked up a book about St. Thomas Aquinas is actually like a little life of St. Thomas Aquinas historical fiction. And by the end of that book, I was like, I want to love the Lord. I want to serve the Lord the way in which St. Thomas Aquinas did. So I'll just do exactly what he did, but in a different country and in a different century. And yeah, that was that was basically the the trajectory.
1: So when you were discerning, did you uh, discern other religious orders? It or was really just that connection to to Thomas Aquinas, and uh, and in that that was it for you. Like diocesan priesthood, see you later Franciscan. I don't think so. Even though they had Bonaventure and others, it was just uh, Thomas Aquinas all the way.
2: Yeah, it was just since I'm a squamous all the way. I um I went because I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. People often ask, you know, like you went to a Franciscan school, you became a Dominican. Do you <laughs> see any conflict? And I am <laughs> like, no, not in the least. The friars of Franciscan were super encouraging a vocation in general, and they weren't yeah. territorial, which is very refreshing. And um, we went to a CC, my sophomore year. So I was You know, like a lot of students at Franciscan go to the study abroad program in Austria, and then you have the opportunity to travel. And so we went to Assisi as a a group, and I went to the Basilica of St. Francis, and there's a famous image there of Francis and Dominic embracing. uh, They are said to have met at the Fourth Lateran Council. Mm -hmm. And... I I I bought a little postcard of that and I like put it on my dashboard. I covered the revolutions per minute for a while there. I hope that's not illegal. And um, that was like the kind of the image that I had in my mind as to why it made sense. You know, St. Saint, Saint Francis introduced me to St. Dominic by way of St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, so, and then I subsequently read GK Chesterton's The Dumb Ox. And the first chapter there is actually about St. Francis and St. Thomas Aquinas. And a lot of that resonated, um, but no, I never really, thought about anything else at any great length i visited the cfrs for a weekend because my friend was going and Mm -hmm. i fell asleep um every morning in prayer sitting next to the vocation director father gabriel bakar who is a great guy and and i was like yeah i just i i I stink at this life in very evident fashion and i'm not attracted to it so (sighs) back to plan a
0: (laughs) that's 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 a fantastic uh (laughs) way of discernment if you fall asleep that's probably not the early disorder for you um but uh no so i I, i'm wondering what is what's it been like i mean you've been you've been uh dominican for a while and for those of us uh you know in the so-called secular world family family life and just kind of the the, the the busyness that comes with that and stuff like that. it's kind of hard for us to conceive like what's it like being religious? Like, what do you do all day? I mean, you just sit there praying all day, or do you like study all day, or like what do you do? Honestly, I mean, so, so, what's it been like for you and like what what's your day-to-day look like? And what's it been like for you being a religious for the for the past so many years? Uh yeah,
2: that's that's a good question. Um, usually when people tell vocation stories or or like give witness talks more generally, um, they'll describe some lead up to yes. a profound moment yeah. of conversion yeah. and that lead up usually describes their life in terms of either like sin or sadness despair anxiety addiction whatever it might be right um and they give you you know just enough details for you to appreciate how bad it was so that then when they describe god's interposing of grace then you see how very stark their uh their kind of 180 was in a way that highlights you know, the, the grace of God. Okay. My, my experience is that that is the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience is that like the ordinary course in which the Lord works in human hearts is slowly <laughs> yes. and, um, and that that's fine. Okay. So just because you haven't had a wild conversion experience doesn't mean that you're a second class citizen. And so when I tell my quote unquote vocation story, I typically say, you know, before I entered the Dominicans, I was sad Uh, lonely, and anxious. And then I entered the Dominicans, and then I was sad, lonely, (laughs) and
1: anxious.
2: Um, You know, so life is difficult before, during, and after. I think one of the things that's beautiful about, you know, vocation of whatever sort, you know, the concrete particular vocation to which you're called, is that it kind of frames the difficulties of life for you in such a way as to make them more intelligible. Right. Mm -hmm. So rather than like previously, you might think, like, ah, this is hard. Let me do something else. Or ah, this is hard. Would that it weren't. Or ah, this is hard. I can't even formulate a coherent thought because I'm so oppressed by the present reality. Whereas in the context of a vocation, it just like kind of doesn't matter in a certain sense. It's like, okay, it's hard, or okay, it could be otherwise, or okay, whatever, you know, describe it as you might. But it's like you're you're committed to this, right? This is your life. Real life is not elsewhere. Real life is, is, it's just here. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, my real life as a Dominican, it takes a different shape uh, depending upon the assignment. So I was assigned in Louisville, Kentucky for a year where I worked in the parish and then I taught at Bellarmine University. That had one shape. And then I worked for the Thomistic Institute for two years. That had its own shape. Presently, I'm a graduate student. So um, I wake up at like 5.45. I get ready for the day. I pray a holy hour. I say morning prayer and then have mass with my community. And then I'm usually at my desk at 7.40 a.m. and then I have four hours and 45 minutes to work. And then midday prayer, followed by midday meal, followed by recreation where you just like have a little bit of coffee and chat. And then I get back to my desk usually by 1.45 and then I have five hours to work. And then at 6.45, Rosary, Office of Readings, Vespers, and then dinner. And then I usually get back to my desk about 8 p.m. And I usually have two meetings in the evening of whatever sort, you know, like, uh, spiritual direction, record a podcast. Um, what else do I do? Uh, like live streams or just like some person emails, the God's planning account and says, I have a question about yada, yada, and this and such. Can you chat it through? Mm-hmm. It's like, yep, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like Monday through Friday is typically how it looks. And then I do a lot of uh, like side hustle, I would say on, on weekends. So um, just find opportunities to preach little retreats, days of recollection, take masses here, there, elsewhere in Switzerland. A lot of times I'll go hiking on Saturdays, which is good. That's kind of like a day out uh, where I will listen to an audiobook, which is great. And then, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, each, each day has its own particular shape. So there's a kind of asceticism in Dominican life where you replace manual labor with study. And there's a sense that study, you know, and prayer as it were, are like the, the principal means whereby you live your contemplative life. So study isn't for the accumulation of information, Study is for the purpose of entering into the mysteries, so that you can be conformed to the mysteries. So there's a sense when I sit in front of my computer, it's not just techne, right? It's theoria. It's not just mm-hmm. like chugga, chugga, chugga. It's like uh, here are things which are true. And by being conformed to them, I am saved. Um, that doesn't always look the sexiest. Uh, a lot of times it's like, wow, I just read this 350 page book in another language and none of it was helpful for my thesis. <laughs> <to you> <laughs> Um, So you have to live in faith, in hope, in charity. Otherwise, it's just like you stare at the void. The void smiles back, and then you're like, "Ah, great! I'm so glad about everything that just
0: happened." (laughs) You know, though, there's so many parallels with with married life. Like, I mean, a lot of people like picture this endless honeymoon of just you know joy and bliss and like romance and intimacy and all this stuff but it's hard. Married life is hard. Family life is hard. Like there's also those moments where it's like, if there isn't this like final causality that you're, you know, you're like, we're, we're getting to heaven together, you know, like there's, there is that, like, it can wear you down and you can get tired and you can lose your joy. And like, there has to be this continual renewal that takes place where you're kind of uh, continually re- you know receiving that new wine, so to speak, that, that, that inwardly uh, gives joy to your day-to-day struggles because, you know, truth be told last night, I didn't get much sleep because our, our baby is waking up an awful lot teething and things like that. And, uh, it can be tiring and things like that. And, or someone's having an emotional moment, uh, melting down screaming. (laughs) It's like, all right, let's deal with this. And it can be the, that same feeling of like, um, this is either completely meaningless or it's supremely meaningful, um, but the vocation is what gives that context of meaning that that helps you press on in those day to day struggles. Um, but I thank you for sharing that. I, I really appreciate that, and it, it gives me a little insight into what religious life is like.
1: That's- Yeah. And I I mean, as Sam was saying, there was a lot of different things that you brought up. And one of the things that I really appreciated was your comment about that um, your discernment was, you know, over time. I always think in my life, be it my systematic, logical nature, my skeptical nature, whatever the case might be, that, yeah, God really reveals himself in the process. Right. It's not any lightning bolt moments. um, And and. To hear that from you is um you know is and in such eloquence is a, is a great reminder that you know in in the walk that we're all in in our lives you know he's still revealing himself to us and we just have to you know be constantly and consistently going back and looking at um that font and and discerning what's next now as a Dominican um how do you live out your charism you know with uh with preaching and and uh just Father, as you're aware, when I lived in uh, Connecticut for two years doing my master's degree, I was blessed to be able to go to, you know, um, St. Mary's uh, there. And, and Father Ascenza was a bit of a spiritual director to me. And and, um, and Father Hugenson-Dyer became a friend. And and they were just, uh, uh, the Dominicans there, I started going to daily mass because at the pulpit, You guys were giving me every single thing that I wanted, you know, from the Council of Trent to Catechism, the Catholic Church. It was just such a beautiful thing. It was very uh, enriching and enlivening for me. And so how do you personally get to you mentioned that your life has taken many different shapes, um, but the Dominican charism is definitely different than the Franciscan Cistercian, or, you know, so how are you able to live that out? Yeah, um,
2: so there are three go to mottos of the Dominican order. The first is Laudare Benedicere Predicare, which is taken from one of the prefaces of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It would have been the only preface of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the old rite, um, So, which just means to praise, to bless, to preach. Um, so this idea that the, the life of preaching issues from praise, blessing, which is to say from the liturgical life. So, so the Dominican life is a contemplative life, right? It's a monastic life, and there's a form to it. And so it's not something that you invent It's not something that you make for yourself or create for yourself. It's a form of life that you assume or a form of life that you adopt. And so there's this basic or kind of fundamental disposition of docility. All right. And, and when that is the case, you, you, you kind of, well, how exactly would you describe it? Well, I think, I think like the, the posture is one of of receptivity or patience with a mm-hmm. kind of expectation that there are divine things which are being mediated through the sacred liturgy those divine things are addressed to me those divine things will sanctify me so sanctity isn't a project right of my own making sanctity Amen. is a work of god to which i consent you know like with which i cooperate in some way shape or form so that's the first there's a real huge emphasis on grace and our mm-hmm. entry into the life of grace through worship specifically liturgical worship there's one dominican 20th century who writes that the religious by his vowed life seeks to make of his existence, a holy and perpetual liturgy. Does it always look like a holy and perpetual liturgy? No. I mean like, yeah, well, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, the next is veritas, right? So truth, uh, I think the, the Dominican life is, is fueled by this desire to have your mind conform to reality uh, because only the truth bears grace, right? There's no grace to be had in proposing a lie, right? even if you think that that lie is more palatable or more tolerable for the other person across from you, it will never bear grace for that person. It will never help that person to confront their difficulties or to confront the reality of their own lives. Um, So the Dominican lives a life of contemplative prayer and study for the purpose of, you know, knowing God and all things in light of God, because that's sanctifying. You don't have to do anything, but the truth, you know, speculative, speculative things are worthy of themselves Uh, because that's the the reason for which we were given minds, right? Minds are for knowing and they're patterned on God's interior life. So that when we know, right, we are more like unto God. And when we know God by God's own knowledge of himself, that's the height of it. And then third and finally is contemplare, et contemplata alis tradare, which means to contemplate and then to give to others things contemplated or even God contemplated. And here, I think... This, is the, uh, this to me is the difference of Dominican preaching. You're not just proposing interesting things, okay? It's not a lecture. It's not a conference. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like Father did some Lectio Divina. He mined some cool gems from the sacred scriptures, and now he's tossing them before us as if pearls before swine. Nope, uh, that's not it. Like the, the point of confronting Revelation is not to find out interesting things. The point of confronting Revelation is, is to meet God, to get God, in fact. It's like a really powerful image from Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, where he says, the whiskey priest says, you know, I put God on people's tongue. And I think that the Dominican preacher is convinced that he can actually mediate that encounter. So the Dominican seeks to give God, right, basically to be a vessel or to be a conduit or to be an instrument of ongoing revelation. Because when you proclaim the gospel, you're not just reading an old dead book, right? It's the word and Christ is present in the word proclaimed. Which is in part where I don't like it, where people like are all looking at hand missiles during the proclamation of the gospel. I'm like, Jesus is is addressing you. Um, I mean, if you need to follow along, pay attention. Cool. Especially if you have three kids who are tugging on your pants um, and you just <laughs> broke a hole through your belt loop, and you're like, these things aren't going to stay on. Um, so, so yeah, the Dominican is uh, is is fired by that conviction that God is you know God is communicable, right? And one can be made such that he is an instrument of the communicating of God. So that's, Amen. yeah, that's it.
1: No, that's very helpful. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, and so basically your lived experience throughout the day, um, each day is, is one of those three or all of them and preparing yourself for, for these sort of, um, these sort of mysteries and charisms and, and, and lifestyle, which I think is beautiful.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's my, my lived experience is oftentimes, uh, less exalted Right. Yeah. But like I have the recognition that something like this is unfolding, you know, once in a while. I call those moments the damn, it feels good to be a Dominican moment. <laughs> um, and you just kind of like you like repose in the glory of the charism. You're like, sweet Christmas. You know, Amen. Christ was born for this. Let's go. It's like when you and your wife wake up on Christmas morning before your kids and you're well yeah. rested. You're like, how did, how, did this happen, <laughs> Jesus? how have you blessed me so abundantly? You know, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i love that i mean it, what are you saying just sounds to me kind of like the difference between knowledge and wisdom like there's this this propositional knowledge where you can just kind of cram your head with facts but it's like when that's integrated at the level of your soul like and it, and it actually becomes part of you like you become one with truth so to speak you're really becoming one with with god in uh in, in christ you know christ is is the logos, the truth, the the underlying pattern of reality. And if we conform our minds to that, we're essentially becoming one with it. We, we commune with what we contemplate. And um, so I really love that way of thinking about it. I think we've really gotten away from that in the modern um, way of understanding philosophy and um, even theology where it's so propositional and conceptual, but it never becomes one with us at the at the level of the soul. So, uh, I really love your way of describing that. And um, I think if we started approaching philosophy and theology in that way again, we would see a complete re- like renaissance or renewal in like in just modern um, it modern uh, thinking, modern way of thinking. So, I, I guess I want to turn to Aquinas, though you mentioned so so much of his influence on you and how you really kind of um, just fell in love with his way of seeing the world. Um, and for a lot of people that might be kind of surprising because you you crack open the the summa if you're brave enough to do that. And it's just this really like kind of boring format of like questions and answers and I answer that and and it just goes on and on and on like, you know thousands of pages and it's like how can you know how could a young uh guy like you know exploring the world be excited by this and yet there was something there that like captured your imagination and and captured your heart and you're like yes like i was looking for this and uh i'm just telling us a little bit about aquinas and like your relationship to him yeah so my
2: first encounter with saint thomas was that lecture And the professor who gave it did a great job of translating St. Thomas. I think that um, St. Thomas is is eminently translatable. Here, I'm not just speaking of translation in the literal sense of taking words in one language and making them to be words in another language, but in the sense that St. Thomas expresses himself in an idiom that's proper to his time. And what you find is some people speak in an idiom that's very much limited to their time. But... St. Thomas has a way of describing reality and appealing to his reader or to his auditor that I think makes him more readily translatable. Like for one, St. Thomas's Latin is about the easiest Latin that you can find. Mm. Like patristic Latin, like early medieval Latin is all far more complex. And then late medieval Latin getting on towards, you know, the early modern period, it gets complex again. And I tend to think that St. Thomas made his prose purposefully clear. So that way it would be readable. Um, Whereas you read somebody like Hegel and it's like, it seems that this man is trying to confuse me. Like that esotericism is part and parcel of his very project, which is devastating because that might inspire inquiry, but it inspires unintelligible inquiry. Mm. Because you think about the way in which the Lord preached, you know, in the gospel of John, whenever he poses something that's a little bit mysterious, he elicits a question you know, from his disciples, uh, how, you know, like how are we supposed to follow you? We don't know the way. And then our Lord subsequently responds with a clarification that opens the mystery up, right? So I am the way, the truth and the life. And I think that that St. Thomas's preaching is patterned after that of our Lord. So like he, he provokes questions and then he elicits a response from you. And then he takes you by the hand in a kind of pedagogical way in a kind of what he calls a monoduxio, a leading by the hand. Um, and then he 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 shows you, right, such that your mind can make the steps and that the, the realities proposed take up residence within. And so I think that in terms of his his idiom, in terms of the way in which he teaches, he is eminently translatable. And I just think that it's not by happenstance that he that he's right. I think that what he proposes fits within an ecclesial vision. It fits within a theological vision. It fits within a religious vision. Which is just the ripest fruit of like all of Christendom. Do I think that Saint Thomas Aquinas can't be surpassed? I, I don't think that. Do I think that Saint Thomas Aquinas has been surpassed when it comes to f- philosophy and theology within the Church's tradition? I just don't. Right? I just don't. <laughs> yeah. I just think he is he is wise. I when you when you look at the life of the Church, it seems that some saints have particular gifts, have particular virtues, have particular graces that that distinguish them among their contemporaries and among all those, you know, in the church's life for a particular purpose. Right. And I think that St. Thomas was just blessed with a surpassing understanding knowledge and wisdom. And I think that you just see that in spades. And for me, it was commended to me basically by his sanctity. The, The book that I read about him, the first book that I read about him was, like I said, it was a story of his life. And there's just these little small gems that just, yeah, just drew me. You know, there's this this story recounted in that book where St. Thomas Aquinas is chatting with one of his sisters, and she says, Thomas, how do I become a saint? And he says, desire it. It's just like, ah, yeah. man, I don't know. Just simple things like that just kill me. You know, does yeah. that mean, okay, desire, does that mean like try harder? No, no. But yeah. it means that amor meo, pandas meo. like that love is a kind of gravitation. Like we won't become saints to the degree or to the extent that we formulate you know, like bizarro world rules, um, we will become saints to the extent that, that love conducts us hence. And we can make disciplined decisions in order to, you know, safeguard that love in order to grow that love. But if, but at the end of the day, it's about love, you know, like, and that's a fundamental insight that St. Thomas got. Um, So yes, I love
1: (laughs) them. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's a lot of great things that you mentioned and, um, yeah uh the reality proposed takes up residence within was that something that uh that you've written about um previously or did that just come off your tongue in that moment uh,
2: i might have just come off my i never know actually what i've said Good. until i've said it yeah. i think chris rock said that about himself
1: but i would like to say <laughs> that it applies to me in a different way uh, agreed oh, that's too fun um oh i appreciate you sharing that i know our listeners are going to love hearing that as well right because um, you know, Thomas Aquinas becomes divisive in our in our modern times, unfortunately, um, you know, people who um, see him as the only authority, you know, on theology and, and that within the church and those who see him as one of many or actually those that are looking to try and recreate, you know, a new sort of wisdom uh, of the ages that we live in now, which, um, you know, all seem a little um, futile, but uh, I appreciate you mentioned in that. So, um, I, I actually wanted to, uh, talk to you again, going back to this, this preaching and the fact that you're on two podcasts regular regularly, you know, you're on this podcast right now. Um, what do you feel like, um, for evangelization, uh, that the generation today is, uh, is looking for, or is most compelling, or what do you feel like, uh, sh- we should be moving towards to bring in more people into the authentic and true, um, you know, fold of the church. But obviously, within that um, that relationship and that love of Christ, um, uh, what, what what are you finding as that which is successful um, or that which is um, providing the that gateway towards people today living in the noise of the digital space, et cetera?
2: Yeah. Um, I have, well, I'll just give one thought. So I think that something, I I, I don't know that I was wholly convinced in the early 2000s that the new evangelization was new necessarily. Uh, But I think that something that is new, something that is afoot, is that there is a greater importance or a greater emphasis placed on the role of the protagonist, right? So it's it's always been the the case that Christ is the protagonist of the Christian life, right? So it's Christ who begs for the heart of man and man who begs for the heart of Christ says Luigi Giussani. Um, but we partake of that, like we partake of that dynamic. So we become agents, right? We become instruments. We become secondary causes, however you want to describe it in the dispensation of salvation. And I think that that's something about the American church, which I've grown to love more at a distance. There's a sense in the American church that if something good is to happen, right, then you do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You can't look to someone else to provide for a need, which you have, have acknowledged, right? which you've addressed, and you're competent to begin to supply for. And I think that that's awesome. There's like a real cool sense of agency because sometimes agency is inspired by a kind of despair. It's like, okay, God isn't going to do anything about this unless I do,
1: mm-hmm. so I have
2: to do it. It's like, no, 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 no. The, the type of agency that I think you're seeing in the last 15 years is an agency inspired by hope. It's a sense that like, okay, God is doing things. And God is doing things in and through me. All right. And and the things that I do may not last forever. You know, a lot of people start podcasts and then take a step back from podcasts. I think that I imagine the average life of a podcast is probably like five episodes. That's a made up Mm -hmm. statistic, but it's something that seems right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that in the life of the church, everything will fail, right? Everything will fail, save the universal church. You think about Um, the church in Northern Africa, okay, during the seventh century, if you were to make a map of it in like 630, for instance, lots of dioceses, made up number, maybe 500 dioceses, all right, you look at that same map in the eighth, ninth century, they're all gone, okay, because Islam swept through, so that's that's a bracing reality, local churches can and do fail, lots of things can and do fail, but that need not be an occasion for discouragement, I remember my first summer assignment, I was assigned to uh, St. Pius, the fifth parish in Providence, Rhode Island. And I was like trying to do programs for people of different age groups in the parish. And one of the things that I wanted to do for like younger people was I, I did scripture and sports. So it was going to be like an open gym night, but start with a little Bible study. The first time that I had it, one kid came and I was like, we're not going to do this. So, you know, here's a chaperone. we going to walk you back to your house, all the best. And then I just rebranded it. The next week as just open gym with no scripture. You know? So it's just yeah. like, <laughs> and, and we had a great time. And who knows if that made in that, like any impact on those children's lives. I imagine almost none, but that's okay. okay. Because yeah. I think there's a sense that like we try to think it failed. Who cares? It's not a negative reflection on you that you did a bad thing or you're a bad person. It's just, you throw spaghetti at the wall and sometimes it sticks, or maybe mm-hmm. it's the ceiling. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not Italian enough. Um, so I think that something that's characteristic about this present generation is a real sense of hope, which inspires a real sense of agency with this conviction that we are the protagonists of the Christian life, not because we cannot rely upon God to be such, but because we can, right? Mm-hmm. Precisely because we can. And that's, that's awesome. And I, I'm starting to see that in like a little bit here and there in Switzerland, and the Netherlands and the Germany places where I visited recently, but it's something that's very pronounced in the American church, something for which I'm very, very grateful.
1: Yeah. No, that's wonderful. Yeah. I, um, I appreciate that. And I think that's exactly what we're trying to do in various different forms, you know, in media and, and means and, and you're right. You know, I think, yeah, five or seven uh, podcasts, but consistency, right. Is what I'm hearing, right. That consistent attempt. And, and if it doesn't work the first time, right. You know, we continue to um, grow in that understanding, but, but we don't stop in our forward movement to, to Christ and to bringing ourselves and others to him. So. Yeah.
0: Amen. Yeah, And I just kind of want to follow up on what you just said too, which I think was really, really wonderful. Um, but uh, I want to, I'd love your thoughts on kind of a polarization that I see happening right now. Um, and it's been happening, but it's getting worse between, you know, the traditionalists and the so-called progressives, where the traditionalists say, if we could just go back to like, I don't know, pick your time frame, uh, you know, 1920s Catholicism, 1890s Catholicism, whatever. If we could just like flip the switch back, revert the liturgy back, revert all the different traditions back, then all of the problems would take care of themselves, in essence. And then the progressives say essentially the exact opposite. Like if we could just like abolish tradition, if we could just dismiss it, jettison it like rewrite Catholic history, like everything would be so much better. Like the church would just be whole and healthy. And like, we would get rid of these cranky traditionalists and it would be one big happy family. Of course we know both positions probably aren't realistic, but you're in an interesting position because you're part of an ancient order that goes back, uh, you know, I don't know, 800 years you're steeped in the the western intellectual tradition um you know kind of from beginning to end and uh so i'd love your perspective on this this kind of uh um dichotomy or um dialectic that's happening in the church and what's the way forward for the church you mentioned this virtue of hope that i really love but like what, where's the future as far as you see it, like what, where are things tending and, and how can we um, kind of uh, move forward in our own way in our own lives?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I actually just recorded an episode of God's planning with father Bonaventure on the theme and it released um, on whatever that would be Thursday, February 3rd. It's called Mm. politicizing all of life. So that's like a 30 minute response to this question. I guess, um, so I have a a few basic convictions. One is there are no golden ages, um, and and not in the sense like historical facticity, that there aren't times which are better than other times. I think there probably are times that are better than other Mm -hmm. times, but I think it's very difficult to verify that claim, right, for a variety of reasons, um, kind of like epistemologically, criteriologically, historically. It's just hard, you know? Because you're like, oh, whatever was the greatest time. And it's like, yeah, but like, I don't know, 45% of people living in this picture that you've showed to me have like teeth rotting out of their heads, you know? So, I mean, what do we mean by better? Like, what are we describing as better? Um, and I don't mean to be like crassly materialistic about it because I think that there, there are good metrics, but those metrics are often unverifiable. Like, what does it mean to take someone's spiritual temperature from 800 years afterwards? I just, yeah. I just don't know what that means, you know? The 20th century produced the most saints. Is that part of the canonization process or is that just like a kind of uh, accident as it were of um, the way in which we promote to the altars in the present day and I mean is that just world popular I mean there are so many factors for which you need to adjust and because it's so difficult, right I just don't think that that golden age thinking actually helps us in 2022 mm-hmm. because my experience is that it that it typically produces a response of one of two sorts which you described you know we begin to idealize it and like long for those flesh pots or we just reject it wholesale. And that causes some serious, serious problems. So I think that I'm, I mean, just by disposition and by kind of like ecclesial affiliation, I'm very sensitive to uh, the kind of traditionalist camp. Um, So may as well show cards rather than be, Mm -hmm. you know, innocent as a dove and, you know, crafty as a serpent. Um, And I I really feel for traditionalists at this moment because I feel like they're getting beaten up. And I feel like they're getting beaten up for reasons that uh, just defy my comprehension, which is sad. Okay. Yeah. Now, in order to like be a good traditionalist, I think that there is a good instinct there of general conservatism. I think of what Chesterton says, you come to a fence in the woods, all right, before you tear it down, you should probably you know try to verify either what it's keeping in or what it's keeping out. So I think it's just good to have conservative instincts about monuments of the past whether those be institutional or liturgical or whatever right we we need to weigh them in the context of a communal conversation because that's what politics used to be about and it's no longer so we need to find fora for for discovering that. On the negative side, though, I think that we want to avoid the, the preferential option for the old, the preferential option for the ancient, because some old things were bad, right? They just weren't good. Um, like, you know, we we lament the fact that many churches were whitewashed in the 1960s and 70s, and I think we lament it for good reason. But not all of the art which was painted over was good art. Some of it was was really tacky. Because I. I've seen some of those walls stripped down and seen the art reveal and it's just like woof, yeah, yeah, you know. So I think that we want to be careful, f- just from exercising the preferential option for the ancient. And I think it's re- it's really important that there be that there be beautiful things, that there be excellent things made in 2022. Um, and I think of Saint John Paul II's letter to artists. Right there's there is something. There is a reason for which we were born here and now. This age is perfect for us because it's ours, right? So we're not optimists. We're not pessimists. We're effectively cosmic patriots in the kind of Chestertonian flag of the world sense. Like this is ours. And so we love it as such. Um, and in loving it, you know, you you beautify it. In loving it, you you redeem it as a kind of extension of Christ's humanity. So that's on the one side. On the other side, I think the progressive side, I mean, there are good some good insights. Um, you know, Archbishop Chaput is famously quoted as having said, if you don't love the poor, you're going to hell, right? And because of like strange transpositions in the way in which welfare systems have been not overhauled since 1996, right? Like the stigmatization of the poor has become like a pretty, pretty acute problem. I'm thinking in the United States, right? Yeah. Um, are there good arguments on both sides? Absolutely, right? But like to the extent that we distance ourselves from the poor, I think we're in trouble, you know, because you just can't read the gospel without being confronted by that fact. It's like, you know, St. John starts preaching and then Jesus starts preaching. What are the first things that they say? It's just like, don't defraud your neighbor. If you've got a cloak or two cloaks, give one away. It's like, it's it all sounds very, quote unquote, social justice What I think is a potential threat with social justice type advocacy is that it does despair of divine help and it does despair of divine providence um, in the sense that there has to be a thick, thick sense that what we are doing is... Christ's work for Christ. Because if it becomes divorced from that, then why? Like why struggle to build up 2022 apart from the kingdom of God, right? Because all of this is passing away. I spent like 18 hours a week ago troubleshooting my camera because of a variety of problems, the likes of which I still have not sounded. Um, it's like, why would that matter? Just throw trash on the internet; it doesn't matter. But I want to make something beautiful for today because I believe that can actually mediate the word of God. And if 1080p is what YouTube requires in order for the algorithm to promote this to more people who could potentially yeah. have their souls saved, then so be it. Right? It's worth it in a certain sense. Don't tell my superiors because I'm, you know, supposed to be working full time on my doctorate, and I am working a lot time on my doctorate. But you know, it's just like we We have to have this cognizance that it's that it's you know through him with him and in him, and to the extent that we that we leave that behind, we become something else, right? It's yeah. just becomes something else,
1: yeah, no, I think that's great, and i you you made, you laid the platform for a perfect uh conversation about your book, right because I think that this is exactly something that Sam and I talk a lot about is um this desire. Uh, for tradition, which we both have, right? Show your cards, Sam and I are both, you know, madly in love with the Latin Mass and and good liturgy, and um, and uh, but at the same time, in the digital space, it's often met with a certain degree of hopelessness or a certain degree of antagonistic, you know, uh, mentality towards anybody who's contrary, and and it really lacks a certain sense of joy and and happiness you know within uh within those circles and i think as you were kind of saying to a degree separated from christ separated from that that unity with with christ and so um you know just kind of shifting a little bit to to your book prudence choose confidently live boldly it's not just about prudence right i know that's what you're get towards and i've been able to to go through a a a large amount of that book. Um, but let's go back and let's talk about happiness and let's talk about how do we maintain our happiness? And in this time when it seems like everything's falling apart and everybody's beating us up and, you know, and where we're struggling, but still with that same understanding that God knew from the beginning of time before there was time that we were chosen to be here now and to help, um, and to be his, his witness and to be his, instruments, you know, here in the world. So let's talk about happiness. I'd love to hear your your um, conversation about what it is, you know, to what end and all those great things.
2: Yeah, I think that it's good to emphasize happiness in Christian conversations insofar as it, it helps to offset a lot of the language about like duty, law, obligation, sin, conscience, which paints a rather grim picture. It sounds as if God has placed inordinately strict moral demands on his servants. And then he is poised in his heavens waiting until such time as we fail. So that way he can lash out and strike us down. It's like, Whoa, you know, like, but that's, that's a kind of 19th century pious vision that's been propagated um, in, in certain quarters. And I think it's just, yeah, we just need to be cognizant of the fact that it's present in a lot of people's thinking and that it may have even infected our own. So when it comes to, you know, like God, we need to, Be conscious of the fact or we need to be recollected in the fact that he created us, you know, so that we could partake of his divine life. There's no other way by which to account for it because he doesn't need us. We supply for no lack in him. And as a result of which we we know, right, that his plans for us are good, right, because those plans issue from his nature, which is good through and through. And then, you know, I, I suppose on the other side to kind of make the claim more subtle or nuanced, we don't want to make it sound as if, you know, Christian life is for the pursuit of happiness, as it were, God wishes for you, the abundant life, um, to make it sound as if it's going to be a cakewalk, right? Just hold hands, skip through the fields, laughing all the day. No, I think the, the yeah. kind of happiness, yeah, exactly. The kind of happiness or, and and God forbid that you show anyone that you're sad, you know, that would be mm. the, the biggest sin imaginable. Um, so I, I think that it's it's more helpful to describe happiness in terms of words which have greater purchase with people in the you know 21st century, words like fit, right? I think a lot of people are looking for a fit. All right, I, I can undergo quite a bit of suffering provided that that suffering fits. Like if I'm training for a marathon and I know that I wanna run whatever time, like 305 in order to qualify for Boston, I'm able to endure a lot of suffering over the course of many weeks because it fits within the plan of my success. And uh, I have a kind of providence, which encompasses all that leads up to the big day. Um, And that providence makes sense, as it were, of the different uh, causal demands placed upon Mm -hmm. me. And I think that when we're looking for the good life, when we're looking to be happy in this present day and age, we're looking for that kind of participation in God's providence so that we can sympathize with it, so that we can enact it wholeheartedly, you know, like volitionally, deliberately, intentionally. So that we can have a sense like, yes, my life may be sad, lonely, and anxious. Yes, I may be made to endure a variety of terrible, terrible things. But yes, like I know that this issues is from the heart of God, that this is ordered to my happiness, that it fits within a plan, which plan is good, which plan mm-hmm. redounds to glory and the salvation of souls. And I think that that is possible, right? It's It is possible. And at the very least, we have to affirm that, right? So as to provide others an entree into a richer plan. That exceeds the compass of their present imaginings.
0: Yeah. yeah, so that I mean that is a fantastic way of putting it, and I agree about the language. You know that that resonates with modern modern individuals more. So it's kind of like uh, Victor Frankel said. You know, like the the meaning is what really uh, is more important than happiness ultimately. Like if we can find meaning in what mm-hmm. we undergo, then happiness will kind of take care of itself. But um, the other dimension that I want to talk about real quick is, um, Eastern philosophy, which is spreading like, you know, wildfire and has been for, I don't know, um, 70 years or more now. Um, it's just kind of taken root in the West. And a lot of people say, well, I get it. I can, I want to be happy or I want to find meaning in life. So I'm just going to download the Headspace app and I'm just going to like meditate every day. And then I'll just like clear all the mental clutter and I'll just be happy. Um, and yet Christianity has this like distinctly different vision. Like you, you look at like Buddhism or, uh, you know, they talk about like, you know, emptiness or the void, uh, you know, and um, there's, there's kind of this search for ultimate reality. Yes. Similar to in the Western tradition, but it's, it's um, in many cases, highly impersonal. Um, yeah. It's, Um, An experience of, uh, yes, void or emptiness or nirvana or, um, and and maybe it's very profound, but it's not personal. It's not someone I can love so much as it is just an experience that will maybe give me peace or help me transcend suffering. But in, in the Christian tradition, it's so very personal. Like ultimate reality is not empty. It's someone you can know. It's a person. It's someone you can love and who loves you. And that's that's distinctly different. So I love you You talk a little bit about like a lot of people today, they're maybe on this quest for meaning or purpose and happiness in life, but they don't see the need for this personal dimension, this need for Christ specifically for, you know, God as revealed in the Trinity. They say, well, "Why can't I just find ultimate reality through meditation or or or, or mindfulness or, or these different practices that maybe give you a level of psychological peace, but aren't ultimately a relationship with reality?"
2: Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's that's very beautifully said, and um, yeah, just super pertinent, I think, for the present times. It's like we've we've come to prefer like homeostasis to. Mm. Ecosystematic harmony, as it were. Um, we've just uh, reduced the frame in which we conceive of uh equilibrium, you know, whereas it used to be more like mystical body being a good image for the Christian vision. It's like you, you, you're part of an organic whole, right? And as a result of which, yes, you have your own personal identity, you're not just a drop of water subsumed so within the ocean upon your death, but that you relate ad alterum. Um, And I think here of Genesis 2, I was actually, I was just writing a little bit this morning. I was thinking about transgenderism, and I think that transgenderism begins with a kind of recognition of the need for relationality, but rather than uh, like situating one's dysphoria within the context of church, polity, family, friendship, etc., so, like, so receiving from without and then conforming to a sane vision, which is mediated by those who have gone before and those who go with. Instead, one makes a determination interiorly, right? And then admits into the form of the heart like a variety of other influences, whether that be like pornography or abuse or the type of grooming that you sometimes hear about in these online forums, things like that, where it's it's at the service of my own self-description. And mind you, that's a like an oversimplification that doesn't do justice to individual people's experiences. But it's fascinating that like the the, the search for peace now radiates out in and rather than something that, that radiates from without mm. to within, which is I, I I mean it's it's a huge sea change. And I think that we're only beginning to appreciate how very different it is. It's 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 consonant with the move from speculative to practical reason rather than being shaped by reality by taking reality in and having my mind and therefore my you know, behavior conform to it. Now I just change reality to conform to my own interior states, whether those states be orderly or disorderly, that's not actually a question to be raised. So it's like, yeah, it's wild. It's it's totally unanchored. And it's it's very yeah, unnerving and unsettling as a result. But then, I, yeah, I'm thinking of Genesis 2 and this idea of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, where he describes how man kind of recognizes himself and his need in relation to others who are unalike, right? Um, And that's a reflection of his posture before God and creation, this like idea of original solitude or original nakedness, right? Um, but just to put that in more simple philosophical terms, we're made towards the other, right? So, like I said, St. Thomas prefers to describe the image of God not as we are made in imagine a day. He says often that we are made ad imaginem day. Mm-hmm. So, it's a static reality which gives rise to a dynamic movement. Like we have minds for knowing, we have hearts for loving, both of which things open us to their object, the knowable, the true, right? The lovable the good so that we can be shaped by that so that we can be matured by that grown by that and ultimately saved by that. But then if you begin to pervert and make it about your impressing upon reality, the cast or shape of your own, you know, particular expression of original sin, that's just, it's a recipe for disaster. Again, like GK Chesterton says, he's in conversation with people in his day and age who would have been very sanguine about the prospects of continual progress because of technological advances. And he says, you know, like cool, cool, cool. But the only intrinsic principle that I see working itself out inexorably is not a principle of evolution. It's a principle of devolution and it's original sin. So if you let the thing go on its own, it's, it's going to get worse. Right. Um, and I think that, yeah, we're just, we're just super naive about that. Just terrifying.
0: Yeah, and, and and uh just this this uh like you said, this radical shift in orientation from receiving reality and maybe even to an extent receiving your identity, yeah, yeah. um, as, as a matter of of tradition, like reality is something that is received rather than invented, mm-hmm. which is kind of the definition of tradition um, we're, we're inventing everything from scratch and, and the, the external must conform to the internal. So if there's, you know, I, I think I'm a rabbit, like I have to go out and like change all these laws and like social mores and customs to like conform to my inner reality. And that's a huge, like monumental project that like people are taking on. Um, but it's, um it's it's something that the um the church has to grapple with in our kind of proclamation of of the gospel in these times is this shift in, in, in this orientation where reality kind of flows out from me rather than um flowing into me uh so
1: yeah yeah well, thank you for all that,, uh, Father. So I want to make sure that we have time to talk about your book, your new book, Prudence, Choose Confident, Live Boldly. I know that one of the things that really was um resonating with me as I was going through it was this um idea of discernment with your conf- conflicting convictions, right? where we're often also busy, and then we can instantly justify our our busyness because maybe it's all for God. you know, maybe everything we're doing is is done with uh, you know, a conversation with, with God, and we know that it can bring good to other people's lives, and, and we enjoy doing it. But instead of just one or two jobs that opens us up to be able to work those um, efforts more effectively and more in line with his will, we uh, do 10 jobs. And, uh, and, you know, we're kind of broken apart. But again that was what was resonating with me and and really attracting me as we're going through that is, is simplifying your life for the sake of um happiness but what do you hope individuals get out of your book um and and how can it better their lives and you know what was your intent behind writing it
2: yeah um so basically it's eight chapters long the first three chapters are kind of set up of christian life and just goes kind of like through happiness and the search for meaning from the first chapter. And then the second just situates you within salvation history. And then the variety of means that God gives to attain to said good life. And then the third chapter is specifically about virtue. And then the remaining five chapters are about prudence and like four and five are kind of like the St. Thomas under the hood, just talking about what prudence is and what prudence does effectively in the life of virtue. And then for me, the whole point of the book are chapters six, seven, and eight. Um, which are called respectively, are you bold? Are you certain? And are you confident? And I I mean, like the the point of that section is just to simply say that the way in which we conceive decision-making is often a little, little off, but in being a little, little off, it, it, it undoes us in a variety of ways. Just to say simply that to be prudent, to grow in prudence means that you just make the best with what you have and to live a prudent life will often look, like a forward progressing dumpster fire at times, but that's okay mm. because that's what our nature was designed to unfold, you know, like, or our nature was designed to unfold according to that law. <laughs> mm. um, so I think that, that sometimes we expect too much of, you know, kind of certainty or clarity, we expect a kind of mathematical certitude but but contingent matters just don't admit of that. Um or sometimes it's like, we think that knowing is enough. Knowing isn't enough, right? The judgment of conscience says, don't do this thing. But beyond don't do this thing, you need to conjure the moral you know, uh, genius as it were to not do it, right? To actually like mm-hmm. persevere in the action. And then when it comes to, um, yeah, just like being confident about decisions, it's like the, the Lord doesn't expect you to be perfect yesterday, right? The Lord expects you to try to be perfect today. And um, that's going to entail a lot a lot, a lot of error and even a lot of sin, but God makes all things work to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even sin. Um, So I think that just to kind of frame prudence within that setting and simply say like, you know, be free, be bold, choose, go, you know, you've got this or the Lord's got this in you. He has plans for your welfare, not for your woe. So, you know, get after it. That's, that's the hope of the book, basically Mm -hmm. chapter six, seven and eight.
1: Yeah. Oh I appreciate that. I will say that it's really easy to read, which I appreciate that, right? And so, you know, anybody who's listened to you on any of your podcasts and stuff like that, I can quickly grapple and understand your intelligence. Um and and you know, and that that's that's wonderful. It gives uh, authority uh, to your word. Um but going through the book, it's it's incredibly easy to digest and and I would say, you know, something that all of our listeners could benefit from. Dang. Thanks. Yeah. When I, so, you know, like
2: sometimes I'm, I'm mining YouTube for, um, for questions to answer in subsequent episodes, you know, looking at comments is, is always a little bit scary, you know, if Humbling. you're a fragile millennial <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, and I'll look at comments. It's like, it's like, Joe, bro, speak a little uh, more plainly. It's like point taken.
0: <laughs>
1: I do. I take the beating in was, our comments, but, uh, but yeah, well, so to that point, uh, the book is is right on, right on track. It's uh, even the higher level um, theology that you go into and understanding of the human person is brought down even with your diagrams and everything like that, right? So that it can make sense.
0: What I like about the book is that so often people have this impression of theology or philosophy that it's just like, just how many angels dance on the head of a pin or whatever, like just so, (laughs) so completely irrelevant to my daily life. But like the, the point of theology is to be lived and, you know, the point of philosophy is to be integrated into us. So like your book really takes it from this kind of heady intellectual space, which you could easily stay there, but then you bring it down to how do we live? Like how, how do we live well? um and and live in a way that uh prepares us for internal happiness so um i really appreciate that about about the book um is it is it public it's published now right like i know we got kind of a sneak preview but yeah uh,
2: it's um it's available on amazon for pre-order but it'll be you know shippable on april 18th so oh, okay. whatever that okay. is okay yep
0: soon awesome well i feel extra privileged now that's right (laughs) we'll we'll
2: be sure to put that link uh
1: for the pre-order on amazon um, in the show notes
2: thanks thanks thanks
1: so father any last things that you'd like to share with our guests um you know about uh men today right that's our those are our listeners and what we need to be doing to strive for holiness and uh to to accept that challenge
0: Preach at us. Preach at us. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I think that, yeah, I think that many men are afraid that they've missed out or that there is, you know, something essential lacking to their formation because you hear many things said of the 21st century and how manhood, like manhood is um, become a, a politicized theme or, because what would ordinarily have passed for manhood is now the yeah. object of great scrutiny or criticism and things like that. And so men feel less confident to be men or men feel scrutinized in being men. But I think that one, one conviction that I have, and it's just it's just a basic Christian conviction is Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And that being the case, well, the circumstances may be more difficult, right? Um, you don't lack anything that is essential for your holiness. Um, by comparison, you know, um, I, I, I've heard a statistic that if um, if a father goes to church willingly with his family, all right, the chances that his children will persevere in the practice of the faith after their college graduation is something like between 85 and 90 percent. It's just staggeringly high, right? Mm-hmm. Because a father has a capacity to validate the faith. So think like, what if you're a woman, you know, who marries a man who is in an RCA class while you're in preparation for the marriage. And then he has a traumatic experience in his life. He falls away from the practice of the faith and he becomes very contrary to it. And you're taking your kids and you're thinking to yourself, like chances that these kids persevere in the faith statistically is like 15%, mm. you know, like maybe I should, what does that woman say to herself? Maybe I should be the father to them. Maybe I should get a divorce. Maybe I should, What does she, how does she fill in that blank? And the one thing I would say to that woman is your job is to be their mother, right? And, and the Lord will give you everything that you need to be their mother and to be their mother beautifully and well and i think that you can apply a similar conviction to the lives of of husbands and fathers that um you know i don't i don't know what your anxieties are like maybe like one of your little kids has like one of your little boys has effeminate tendencies. And you're like, it's just in the water in the 21st century. What am I doing wrong as a father? Or like maybe one of your college age kids is a little bit touch and go with practicing the faith. And you're like, what did I do? How did I fail? What, you know, like you may be posing to yourself serious questions about your limitations as, as a man, as a husband, as a father. And I would just say, just return to the font of masculinity, return to the source of your masculine virtue, who is Christ himself. And Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what he mediated to his disciples in the first century remains available to you in the 21st century. It will look different. It will come by different means, but it is still rich and abundant and enough, more than enough, in fact. Um, So, yeah, I would just say, yeah, don't be afraid. You know, take heart, be of good courage. The Lord has overcome the world and you have what it takes, you know, to do the mission or to, you know, to perform the vocation for which you've been called
0: that's beautiful yeah so often we focus on the lack of what we don't have um and uh i love i love the reorientation to the fact that we have everything um that we need in christ uh, uh, thank you for that
2: boom
0: yeah that's a where you can say father sorry
2: oh no i was i just said boom but it actually reminds me yeah. so for god's planning we're having um, a few retreats this summer and one of them is it's like that. Basically it's, it's called Christ model of men. So it's a young man's wilderness retreat. Um, so we have uh, like an all comers retreat and then a young adults retreat, both of which are mixed. And then we have just a young men's retreat, uh, which is uh, going to be in the the mountains and just outside of Brevard, North Carolina. So uh, yeah, check out guysplaining.org. If that's something you've been interested in They're in July and August. Awesome. awesome. Party on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now that's something that interests you. Definitely, definitely check it out. So, um, well, I mean, it was a a perfect way um, to end the episode uh, that just lines up so, so well with our motto, right, Sam. So, you know, as we like to end each episode.
0: Be a man, be a saint.